This week, Stephen and I talk about our recent debate tournament uh, up on the East Coast, and we get into a whole lot of interesting cases. We talk about uh, our crazy debate round experience, and uh, we talk about just some interesting stuff that's out there. So stay tuned. We've got a lot to talk about. Okay, so um, let's see here, Stephen, and uh, and so looking at this tournament, um, we've had a little bit of time to recover now. We've had I don't know a day or two. Uh, it doesn't seem long enough, but we went to this interesting tournament uh, up on the East Coast. I won't talk about the specifics of the tournament or people there for certain reasons, but um, we encountered some awesome cases. The first one was just an Egypt case, which, I mean, that was that was a fun round. It was a warm-up round. Um, we, we ran the same arguments against it that we've talked about on this show using a minor repair to enforce the Leahy laws, and we won with that. Um, but getting into some of the other cases, uh, what, what were some of your biggest takeaways really quickly or just some interesting thoughts you had about this tournament? My biggest takeaway, I would say... There's quite a few, but one was, I feel like before in a previous podcast said how effective um, generic briefs are, just on generic 4 and 8 bad, 4 and 8 good. But I didn't realize till this tournament really how applicable it is to use those. Instead of attacking a specific case, you can take a step back and attack 4 and 8 is not effective, or 4 and 8 will hurt these people more than it will help the people, which I thought was really interesting. Um, another aspect is you definitely need to build alliances with other players. I highly recommend that. And that's what definitely saved Christian and I multiple times. Definitely. Um, so wait, alliances, what do you mean by alliances? So basically just have your friends there who you can run to in the panic of running to your classroom to go to a debate round and ask them for a brief. Hmm. It's in case Basically, you other teams or people you know who uh, you wouldn't necessarily have what they have, um, or, or maybe they have something that you don't have, I, I should say, um, assuming they're not from your, your club or something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, be able to trade off stuff with them. Make sure that they're people you can trust in terms of briefs that, you know, you're not going to get anything sketchy from them. That's but, a good point. Um, try to, you know, have people on hand that you can give favors to and back and forth. That's a good tip. Yep. Um, awesome. I think one of my big takeaways from this tournament was just how hard it is this year to really go affirmative effectively. This year, <clears throat> or at this tournament, we won every negative round and we lost every affirmative round. Now, to be fair, to be fair, before I get into this, <laughs> too much depth... <laughs> We will be unveiling, I don't want to unveil it right now, but we're going to get into, <laughs> in a few minutes, uh, you have to keep listening, we're going to get into why we lost one of our rounds, and how it's the craziest experience we've had with losing a round in our entire debate careers, um, in just in just a few minutes, but, uh, so we don't really count that round, and then we did have a bye, because it, there was an odd number of teams at this tournament, and we were one of the teams that got a bye uh, pretty early in the tournament, so... Uh, we only went affirmative twice. One round, I think, we legitimately lost. It was fair. The other one we'll get into in a second, and then 
we want all of our negatives. But again, going back to what I was saying, the big takeaway here was that a lot of teams, not just us, but a lot of teams seem to be stronger on the negative than on the affirmative because there's a lot of things people can argue this year. And if you don't argue something that's really rock solid, it's really easy to knock out mm. almost any case this year. Um, yeah, absolutely. Definitely with the numbers too, because if you just look at the cases out there, a lot of them deal with really minute things like talking about Saudi Arabia, because that's a really popular um, case that's out there. A lot of those cases are dealing with things that aren't even aid, or if they are aid, we give like $7,000 worth of aid to. So they're so insignificant. They're so easy to attack from a range of things. If you talk about human rights, you can attack that from existing laws that are on the books. Terrorism, you say, oh, well, mm-hmm. this country is sponsoring terrorists. There's laws about that as well. There's all these ways under inherency that you can go after almost any case out there right now. So um, that that was my big takeaway. Um, very interesting stuff out there. Uh, diving right into the cases, uh, one of the cases we went against, we went against three cases, negative. First one was Egypt. Um, Stephen, talking about malaria, talking about this case and some of the stuff we encountered, what were your thoughts? All right, yeah. So first round was Egypt. Next negative was increasing our funds to some global malaria fighting project. And that case, when I first heard about it, I was in a huge panic because I felt like right off the bat, this idea of helping poor people who are dying from malaria is really going to hit the judge in the soft spot. Um, as we went into the round, we I think their case was pretty well ridden. And we didn't really have a negative refund, so that really hurt us too. But their case was well ridden. And then, thankfully, Christian thought of a pretty solid counter plan. Um, I don't know, malaria wasn't my favorite case. It was a good case. So basically, they were proposing that the U.S. increase its funding to, what's that organization called, Christian? I think it was like the, the Global Fund or the Global, Global Fund, Fund yeah. for Fighting Malaria or something like that. Yeah, something like that. We increased it by about $10 billion by 2023 or something like that. It was like 3.3, but like a billion at first or like one point something billion and then like a billion per year. It was kind of weird. Yeah. So we just slowly increased the funding and that would help a lot of people fight malaria. But the issue with it, first of all, is some law was passed in 19 something or another that basically stated the U.S. isn't allowed to fund more than 33% of the global fund's budget. And currently, we're already at like 29 point something or another. So by increasing it 3.3 billion, we'd go far over the law. So that was our first disadvantage we ran was breaking the law. Then we ran another disadvantage, which was a generic um, humanitarian aid violates the Constitution which is just a throwaway argument, but we just threw that one out there. But with those two disadvantages, we then ran a counter plan, which is we do basically the same thing as the affirmative team. However, instead of increasing the funds from the U.S., the U.N., because we have fiat power over all countries outside of the United States federal government, um, makes we just let the U.N. choose which countries, but we, the U.N. makes other countries who pay far less to the global fund than the U.S. does, increase their funding, and make up what the U.S. was supposed to make up. So we get the same exact advantages, we get the same exact effectiveness, 
but we don't have the disadvantages that we presented. Right, and on top of that, we argued uh, a solvency point, which really, which was really just a cross application of the first disad, which was the point that uh, legally the United States can't make up more than thirty three percent of the global fund budget. And so, um, by arguing that, we could say, well, judge, you know, we can argue uh, the the affirmative team can argue here that oh, well, even if we can't go over thirty three percent, we can still push up to three thirty three percent. Um, that's really the the best argument they can make there uh, from a solvency perspective. And they weren't even arguing that. They're saying, oh, no, this law has never even been imposed or it's only been invoked once whenever we were going to go over 33%. Um, and, and they tried to argue that the law wasn't on the books anymore. They had no evidence on it. They seemed really surprised by it. And uh, using that argument, we um, did that counter plan, which basically same thing just change the actor say all right there's going to be some un resolution and all these other countries will just agree to it and provide the money doesn't matter which country doesn't matter who doesn't matter the details but it'll get funded taken care of same same everything just different actor um and we just feel that that will happen under a non-topical counter plan and it works the and the reason why i think it worked was that solvency argument, that solvency slash disad argument, and also the fact that the affirmative team could not show any reason why the United States in particular had to give aid for this. The best example they could list was where some American soldiers were killed in a horrible instance of some malaria infestation in Africa, and something like 250 soldiers were affected by it, which was awful, but they couldn't show a specific benefit that the U.S. would receive from it. And worse yet, the affirmative team, and I don't I don't mean to attack or demean the affirmative team here because I'm sure they're great people and smart <laughs> students, but they didn't seem to understand the basics of how the federal government receives its funding or how economics play into federal spending because they had no funding for their plan, which I'm not saying it's that's some horrendous thing like oh you need very detailed outline funding but you need some basic source of funding if you're saying we're going to allocate all these new billions of dollars to something it's not that hard you can just say congress will print more money you could say through general federal revenues which just means we print more money or we pull out of the budget and just run a deficit whatever it's not that hard as an affirmative you can just fiat it Instead, the affirmative tried to take a creative route and be clever, and in doing so, highlighted a bit of understand misunderstanding of how the government works when they said, this plan will pay for itself because after we spend these billions of dollars, we're going to save billions of dollars by not having to spend money through the healthcare industry on people with malaria. Here's right. the problem. Or if they would have said funding comes from normal means. Right. Here's the problem, though. They, the, the people in the United States, people within the U.S. healthcare system, aren't the ones that are costing tons of money to fight malaria. The U.S. is not under a malaria epidemic. It's countries in other ends of the world, like um, sub-Saharan Africa, that are affected by malaria and that have to pay these healthcare costs. So we're not going to get that money back. And even if we did, saving that money through the healthcare industry does not translate into um, saving rerouting funds through the federal government or into the federal budget to spend 
on U.S. aid. That's just not how it works in federal spending. And I mean, it's not a bad idea in theory, but the way they worded it just asked for a negative team to come and say, you have no funding. And if you have no funding, you can't give the money in the first place so that you can earn the money back later. Um, it was very problematic the way they ran it. And I think the judge saw that and it basically shot themselves in the foot. Right. Right. I agree. Um, it seems like okay. from some politician's standpoint, I've seen this a lot. Uh, seems like a lot of people want uh, the UN to, or a larger body outside of the U.S. to decide what happens in the world and the U.S. should fund it. Right, and that's an argument that they could have made. But other other than those soldiers being affected by it, they had no reason to justify why the United States specifically should spend all this money for something that we're not going to be the ones that get the benefits from. And to be fair, you could argue that uh, you know morally we have some reason to do this or that private charity should do this out of our own personal benevolence and, and moral religious obligation to help people who are less fortunate. But that's not the argument they were making. They were simply stating, well, the United States should do this because we're the United States. And right. we had some soldiers that were affected a couple years ago in some really rare and horrible instance. But the problem is there's no reason then that the negative would be wrong in proposing a counter plan to have someone else pay for it. Have the people who are going to benefit from this pay for it if it's so helpful or have some other you know, generous European country pay for it. The money is there. It's just who pays for it and who benefits from it. Right. And on top of this, one card that we asked them in CrossX is the U.S. already gives just over a third of the global funds funding in the current status quo. So right. that's and one reason we threw against the judge. We're like, judge, we already give the some majority of the funding. So now do we have to give even more and all the other countries will pay even less? Right. Why should you spend more of my taxpayer dollars for something I'm not even benefiting from to help people in another country? It's, again, it's arguably a good thing. It's just not necessarily a great thing for us. And even if it is, you know, how do we justify that additional money? The reason why that right. law that we mentioned earlier on, that Stephen mentioned, the reason why that law was put in place was actually to keep the U.S. from becoming the primary funder of the global fund. And effectively now it's failed because we, we are the primary funder of this organization. And, um, you know, it obviously keep us from passing that 33% threshold, which is theoretically good because it means other countries have to contribute. It forces some accountability on them. They can't just yeah. reap the benefits of our taxpayer dollars. They have to actually spend some of their own money on it, which is great. Um, but even with that, we're the primary funder of this organization. So it's it makes it that much harder to justify additional spending on this. Um, before we close on this case, I will point out there are some other arguments to take against this. This is how we beat this case. I think if this team or if other teams continue to get very creative with this case, I think this could be a strong case. Um, if they get around, you know, why the U.S. should be the country to spend this money, and if they simply add into their mandates, well, we'll get rid of that 33% requirement, which apparently the affirmative team didn't know about. Um, 
then it could be a very good case. So there are other arguments against it. I just want to say those could be researched. Um, right. Some of those might be things like the global fund wastes money, um, that it actually, if you give them more money, they're, they're not going to use it as efficiently, and therefore you'll have lots of waste within the organization. You could say they don't necessarily need more money. Um, there, there's other ways you could get after this, so I don't want to just blanket it with these things, but um, this is, it's an interesting case. I'm not sure I would recommend running it, but it's, it's something to look into, and it's definitely something that any negative team needs to be prepared to argue against. Right, and if you think of running this case, add in a mandate to repeal the law that limits the U.S. from only giving 33%, and that will give you significant ground. Absolutely. Elijah, before we close up on this case topic, do you have any thoughts on it or anything you want to add? Yeah, um, not really. I mean, it's kind of just... I I just understood what you guys said, and it kind of makes sense that you, you won. Awesome. Okay, Good cool. Um, going down lastly uh, to, in terms of the cases, and then we'll cover, last but not least, um, our epic defeat in a round. Um, the Peace Corps harassment case. So this is a case that we've heard about that um, I remember in, in a case list spreadsheet seeing something about you know weeks ago and just kind of ignored it i thought oh i don't i don't know but uh you know surely we won't run into this case or surely um it, it'll just be a peace score case and we can just reuse the blue book negative brief um well i was sort of wrong but <laughs> fortunately fortunately steven uh used his excellent social skills to um convince some teams to be nice to us and uh, loan us some materials uh, and some research that they gathered on the case to argue against it. And because of those those research materials, because of that evidence, we were able to actually defeat the case in a uh, with a three-judge panel. And uh, we managed to win all, all three judges, which I was shocked at. Um, and so looking into this case, Stephen, would you mind just telling everyone listening a little bit about this case and what some of your thoughts are on it. I know you said earlier when we were talking that you thought it was a pretty good case. I'm curious why you say that. Yeah, so background on what this case is, it's basically just your usual this year abolish the Peace Corps case, but instead of so much attacking the side that the Peace Corps is wasteful and doesn't complete its job, it attacked it from two main harms. The first one was drug abuse, where they said the Peace Corps... They had a pretty big number of participants in the Peace Corps go to the foreign countries and they take a bunch of different drugs, which can potentially harm our relations with other countries. They didn't have any examples of other countries where we were directly harmed through drugs, but that's what the evidence said. And Wait, so it sounded big and scary. Do they take medical drugs or just like normal drugs? It's like, like illegal cocaine, drugs. Heroin, illegal drugs. Illegal drugs. Bad drugs, not good drugs. <laughs> um, then they had a second harm which was sexual harassment, basically saying that one in five women who are part of the Peace Corps reported being in some form either sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. Um, and this, I don't know, this kind of made me quiver a little bit because it's very, very hard to go negative against a case involving sexual harassment just because it's such an emotional topic. And you have to be so, 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 so careful with your wording when you argue it. The judges get very, very mad, and you know, no one, 
no normal person thinks sexual harassment's good. Everyone thinks it's bad, but you need to be super careful not to come off to the judge as making it look good. So we took two approaches. The reason I thought this case was good is because it wasn't it wasn't a very very good case, but it sounded like a good case because I love cases that have a lot of emotional appeal. I really hate arguing facts and statistics, hmm. um, but I love emotional arguments. Like last year, Christian and I ran this case to mandate motorcycle helmets throughout the U.S. And I loved getting up there and talking about so many, so many people die because then the negative team really can't argue against that. But Christian and I took two tactics. We managed to get a brief from a couple of our opponents that showed that the drug abuse, first of all, is really un... First of all, non-unique. The drug abuse percentage from the Peace Corps to modern everyday life, there was no way the affirmative team was able to prove that more people in the Peace Corps use drugs than they would have if they were just on the streets. And the affirmative team had no proof. They're, the harm that they said is that we could possibly be kicked out of other countries for our Peace Corps volunteers using drugs, but they had no proof that this had ever happened before. They basically, their argument was kind of like, oh, we're going to set bad examples for all these poor people that yeah. we're trying to help, and we're not going to you know, be good examples to the kids in those countries. And, and, and they didn't say that specifically, but that's really what it came off as. Right. And they said, oh, we're, gonna, we're not going to be friends with these countries. Right. And then Christian guy's been cross-ex and absolutely, it was pretty funny. He was absolutely grilling the guy. Um, and he was like, has this ever happened before? And he was like, no. And he's like, were we ever kicked out of any countries? And the guy brought up how we were kicked out of Russia, Russia, Cambodia, and like two other countries. Czechanistan, yeah. But I, we previously knew that Russia kicked the Peace Corps out because I believe it just, Russia's not Russia a fan of the U.S. all the time. Yeah, and same for Cambodia. Um, and we were like, so they were kicked out directly for using drugs. And the other firm team was like, oh, well, uh, uh, uh. and then we were able to show that there's actually no link between the two. And mainly um, so that we've never been friends with those countries in the first place. I mean, have we ever been friends with Russia? No. Will right. we ever be friends with Russia? Probably not. Do we want to be friends with Russia? Not really. So why does it matter? Right, 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 right. And then for the sexual harassment, we had a couple of cards. This is really a hard one to argue. Um, and if you ever run against this case, please make it clear to the judge beforehand that you're not condoning this in any way, but you're just showing the reality of it. And so we showed that um, same like for the drugs, sexual harassment on in, in the Peace Corps is not any more common statistically than it is. We had a card talking about the New York subway, how it was like one in five were the same on each one. Um, and then we had a card that said the Peace Corps in October 10th of 2018 passed a new law. That was basically, I want to be clear, Christian was when you read the card, but it was basically new training protocols for volunteers who are going in and new um, legal requirements for resolving a situation. So by that, we were able to attack inherency very strongly and able to attack significance very strongly. And we just ran a bunch of good old disadvantages. Right. And as for those inherency cards, because I think those are really, really important to um, any team going in. I think from one of the judges, we actually one on inherency in part because of our arguments and part because the judge who was actually a debate coach uh said that the affirmative team and i, and I agree with the judge on this the affirmative team misunderstood the actual stock issue of inherency 
um, which was problematic for them. But could you say he, what that is, real quick? So um... inherency for any for anyone listening who who doesn't um, who's not familiar with it uh, is basically it could be a few things, but it, it basically has to show not only that your plan is not already passed, but that there's some barrier to something happening in the status quo, that there's some justification for using the fiat power of the affirmative team over the entire federal government to make the plan happen, because otherwise the problem will not go away and it will not be solved. So an inherency card in favor of the affirmative could be something like there's a social uh, norm or a social attitude that says rape is okay. And so therefore, if we don't do something about rape with this affirmative case, then nothing is ever going to get done about it. Or it could be uh, a legal barrier. So there's this law on the books, which is keeping something from being done, which is good. And therefore, we need to get rid of that law. Um, or it, it could be any any number of things along those lines. But that would have supported the affirmative. Instead, however, the inherency was all in support of the negative. So I think mm-hmm. in 2010, there was some sort of law or something passed. I'm not sure exactly about that. I want to say Stephen's correct on that date, though, but I could be mistaken. But there was two different laws passed. The first one was in 2011. The second one was in 2018. Right, right. That that makes sense. Um, so there were there were two laws passed. I think those two laws. The, the second one might have been before 2018. I think it was 2016 or something. The because the affirmative mentioned two laws that were passed that supposedly failed. Well, following up on that, just a few months ago in October 10th. Uh, 2018, uh, President Trump actually signed into law a new law, which actually um, does something to amend the previous laws or something, I think. I'm not sure of the exact details, but basically it tries to address problems, fix things, and create more accountability and transparency within the Peace Corps to deal with these issues. Um, That was the first thing. The second thing was that... um, there's actually been a lot done internally. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of mechanisms in place, I'll say, within the Peace Corps to address sexual assault, to address any instances of this, and like they have to have um, sexual assault liaisons at any base or something for the Peace Corps. I don't know if if it'd be called a base or just a location, but um, whenever they're stationed somewhere, they have to have two people on staff at all points who uh, they can go to if there's any sort of reports or allegations of this. They have to have um, certain accountability and recording mechanisms for it. They have to follow up on it through and through. And so there's a lot that's in place. And then thirdly, this was really the big thing. This was what Stephen brought up in his second negative constructive, that 96% of women polled or or victims polled um, in some study or internal audit, I think, said that they were satisfied with the response by the Peace Corps about this. And the reason why that mattered towards in favor of the negative was that the affirmative was trying to show that because sexual assault was allowed to exist within the Peace Corps, because that was a problem and it wasn't going away, it therefore translated into how the Peace Corps as a whole functions and operates and the environment and atmosphere within it which then translates into how they represent the United States abroad. 
So are they representing us as this country which is condoning sexual assault, which is promoting sexual assault in other countries, and all these horrific evil things? And the answer is no. Sexual assault is no more common in the Peace Corps than on a public train, and it's no more condoned there than anywhere else. And they have a lot of mechanisms to deal with it. There's been new laws to address it. And victims of sexual assault in the Peace Corps have openly stated, we had a card that stated this by a victim who said, I was not sexually assaulted or, or raped because I was in the Peace Corps, basically, stating that uh, this victim stating that she was um, attacked because that's the world we live in. Um, we live in a broken world with people who do horrific things, and that happens, and that's terrible. But that's not because of the Peace Corps, and the Peace Corps did everything it could to respond to that and to address it. And at the end of the day, she was satisfied with the response that they provided. So that really directly slams into what the affirmative is saying, trying to argue that the Peace Corps is this horrible organization responsible for all these horrible things. Right. Um, before we close uh, on this topic, Stephen or Elijah, do either one of you have any thoughts or anything you'd like to add to this? Um, I'm just wondering, uh, was... So the the percent what was the percentage of women that reported they were sexually harassed or assaulted and um one in five okay one in five and is that let me think is that how many um is that by everybody while they were in the country or is that by people? Um, I'm not sure if it was while the they were Corps. in countries or just in the Peace Corps. I think it was in the Peace Corps. So but, from people in the Peace Corps, right? I, I would look into, however, because um, I mean specifics of that. I would also one thing I would add that I forgot to mention was there was uh, some inherency evidence talking about how the Peace Corps was responding to claims by some CBS News report about sexual assault. Apparently, in the original format. Of this case, there was a reference to a CBS article which had very gross misre uh, misreporting or um, errors in it that exaggerated the extent of um, sexual assault within the Peace Corps. And there's some evidence out there responding to that saying that those reports are false or that they are um, misconstrued, which is very helpful. I think since then, the affirmative team has changed the evidence that they use in their report or in their 1AC, excuse me. But it would probably be wise to look into the statistics and see if they are not, in fact, lower than what they are um, reported as being in the 1AC. Okay, out of out of the 25% who reported sexual harassment, um, how many of them asked for... Um, asked for investigation after the the um after reporting it because i mean I think like, it's required that all of them like the peace corps policies require that it's investigated for all of them oh that is right. good did they uh do they have a percentage on cases uh finished and found uh, i'm uh, not sure not, exactly of those details sure. but 96 percent polled said that they were satisfied with the outcome okay and yeah. I'm just like one more note. Um, Peace Corps goes to a lot. Go the Peace Corps goes to a lot of um, 
like poor countries where a lot of crime and um more it's not as good as of a condition as the US is so if uh never mind i'm going to cut that out okay all right um well i think we've sort of covered this topic thoroughly last but not least Stephen, uh, do, do you want to explain, or do you want me to explain Oof. how we lost um, our last round? I'll introduce it, and you can hit it off. So oh you know those rounds where you think you did a good round, you're pretty sure you won, you're excited, you finish the round of the tournament, and you look at your ballot and you lost, and you're like, man, this judge is so wrong. Like, I basically had a deaf judge. Like, they didn't understand any of your arguments, so on and so forth. Oh. <laughs> Christian? So, as Steve and I were about to walk into the room, we, <laughs> I, was a little, I was a little late. I was running up, catching up to Steven because uh, I had to go to the bathroom or I had to grab something or say something to somebody. So we were running up to the round. I saw some people staying uh, or standing outside. There was a mom. There were who was a who was a tab worker, I think. There were two girls uh, from the other team. There was Stephen and I, and the tab worker <laughs> leaned in close to all of us and said, "Now there's something you need to know before you go into the round. The judge is a little hard of hearing." I'm like, "Oh, okay, he's hard of hearing." And then she quickly and very sternly said, "No, he's really hard of hearing. Like <laughs> you need to yell. Like you need to yell." For this judge to hear you. And I was thinking, oh dear. This is, <laughs> this is going to be interesting. And it turns out the judge is basically deaf. Which, to be fair, th this is... I, I don't want to list this tournament or to list anyone involved. Um, and, I, and I don't blame the, uh, the judge. I don't blame the tournament necessarily. Um, I think Tab could have handled this better, for sure. But I'm, I'm not going to... You know, blame them or whatever. It's over. It's done, and uh, everything. the The only people who I really think are at fault here, for the most part, um, are whoever whoever <laughs> invited invited this judge, someone who they know can't hear, to judge speeches in a debate round. I mean, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard, and we got that? him. We lost. He lost one of his hearing aids before the round. Yeah. So, so there's that too. Not only could he not really hear in the first place, <laughs> he could hear half as much as he could normally hear in the round. And I mean, this is this is really pitiful, and it, I I feel bad for the judge because I'm sure it must be awkward and and really kind of embarrassing to feel like you need to judge this event uh, of these young people speaking. And you can't hear them, but apparently the judge said, leaned over to somebody and said uh, that he was trying to lip read the entire debate round. And at the end of the round, this is this is really just even worse for the whole situation. He leaned back over to the mom of the other team who was sitting behind him at a table, and he asked the mom, "This is this is just how well he was trained in the judge training." Uh, he asked the mom who won the round. He didn't know. He didn't even know how to judge or if he was deciding. <laughs> I mean, this is just really, really just not a good way to 
to run judge training, to run judge recruitment, or any of this. I mean, this tournament had more than enough judges. They had so many judges at the end of the tournament, at the end of the last round, that every team, every debate round, had a three-judge panel. And the final round had a five-judge panel. So this is not like they had a deficit of judges. They just happened to give us the deaf judge, which... Yeah. I mean... Story, we definitely lost that round. But Wait, we, why... We lost- I'm just going to wonder, um, having a deaf judge doesn't necessarily mean that you would lose. The girls could have lost, too. Do you have another reason? Like, maybe, do you think that he was able to lip-read them better, or something like that? I think the two cute girls versus two old, ugly teen boys. Who's going to win? <laughs> I, I agree. I have to agree. I mean, at the end of the day, let's face it. This is something that debaters, male and female, all recognize is, in any debate round where there's two girls versus two guys, the two girls are always going to have an advantage because judges always are extra nice. So the two nice, timid little girls on the other team who, you know, if they play their cards right, can play that so, so well. I mean, there is, there is a little bit of sexism in debate. I'm, I'm not going to... To say I'm a victim here, I'm not going to pull that card. <laughs> but there's are. definitely some discrimination against male teams. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you know what you should just do? I'm only saying that. I only agree with that because I've had talk with many a female debater, and they all agree with it. So I feel And they, like they all say, say they harp on that whenever they're in rounds. They all admit to it. Um, it's, it's no secret in the debate world. Um, you know, and it is what it is with that round. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really salty. I'm not... Um, it's it it's is what it is, story. but it's a great story, and, and uh, it'll go down in debate history as one of the most interesting reasons to lose a debate round ever. Um, so yeah. there's that. I have, all right, gentlemen. I have to go. Cool. All right, fantastic. Thanks for thanks for coming on, Stephen. Good deal. Yep. See you guys. It was fun. All right, bye bye. Okay, the phrase of the week this week is a squirrel case. A squirrel case is a special case with certain characteristics. Uh, Typically, it's based on a rather obscure topic, something that the negative team would not, would most likely not have any information on. Um, The affirmative would use this case, hoping that the negative team would lack cards um, against them. So the negative team wouldn't really have much much of a case against them. Uh, Sometimes, most of the time, actually, the affirmative case isn't even that good. It could be, like, totally conquerable if the negative had evidence on it. Uh, Because of that, uh, squirrel cases are rarely ever used at more than one tournament due to the fact that clubs could assemble a negative brief and easily defeat it at the next tournament. Uh, much like a squirrel, it's uh, there for a second, but they dart off at the sign of danger. That's that's just what I'm guessing is the reason for calling it a squirrel case. Uh, do you know why it's called a squirrel case, Christian? Um, I think it is just the fact that uh, squirrel cases are generally the kind of things that you, you run once and they're not very consistent. You don't stick with them. They're never very good. And uh, you pretty much just trash them as quickly as possible. Um, I, I will give one example of a squirrel case that I ran against. So when I was in my trade policy 
year, um, we were debating trade policy with China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, I think. Uh, there was actually a case to illustrate kind of what squirrel cases are that dealt with some sort of interesting ban on like trade with South Korea or China or something like that um, over or sanctions over uh, these trade violations, sanctions violations where uh, Huawei, this Chinese company, was providing phones to North Korea or Iran, and these phones had American technology in them. So that violated our sanctions. Um, the problem was the case had actually, their case had something to do with lifting or adding sanctions, something like that. But it actually had already been done two weeks prior. So this is the kind of thing where um, it gets run very randomly and sporadically, and it's usually not thought through at all because oftentimes they're either passed already or they don't work or there's some gaping hole in it. They can easily be exposed uh, if someone has a chance to research. So if anyone knows anything about your case prior to walking into the room, you're instantly done. That's why uh, I highly, highly, highly am against squirrel cases. But yeah. Well, yeah, that was a uh, was... thank you, uh, Christian. I'm actually I have actually pledged in my mind to do one squirrel case every debate year I do. But it has to be about squirrels. <laughs> and I'm literally doing a squirrel case about squirrels. The question is, though, why? Because it would be hilarious. Right now, uh, me and my partner, I'm writing my case. I can't give you the specifics because I don't want anybody to give a negative brief. But it, we're gonna. It's our plan is called the Tran Transoceanic Regenerative Economic Exchange for the Restoration of Agricultural Tree Squirrels, or uh, that acronym is Tree Rats. Oh my. Yep, and I'm gonna run it uh, at least once. Oh boy! All right. Well, that will definitely be an interesting uh, experience. I think um, I'm doing it for a good story. I feel like it'll be just like everybody will be, everybody will think, whoa, that is so just, stupid. Just but like it's hilarious. At the end of a tournament, just just for laughs sometimes, just for the memes. Yes. Yeah, just for the memes. All right, well, be sure and be sure and send over a, a copy of that or something so we or, or tell us about it afterwards so that we can yeah. uh, share that with the masses, but Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. Uh, it's been a little bit of a shorter episode this week. It's just sort of a, a post-tournament review for Steven and I. I just wanted to share some stuff with you guys. Uh, we might talk about some more cases we learned about the tournament in the next episode. But for now, this is the Team Policy Podcast, and we hope you have a fantastic week. Bye-bye.